There we go. Thank you, John. John. All right. Well, let's go ahead and just start in prayer because I'm going to dive into it very much like last time where I kind of covered a large swath of the narrative of the Old Testament in order to give us the backstory on the person of Christ. And this, uh, hopefully, I'm going to be able to get through the second half of this that gives us a biblical theological fulfillment of who Christ was in light of those themes. Let's pray, and then we will get into it. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for a Christ who has, in fact, come in the flesh, who learned obedience by what he suffered, died, rose, and ascended. We are thankful to be united to that Christ. We pray that we would listen and learn this morning in the spirit of that union and that we would have an inflated and enlarged view of who Jesus is as a result of what we see in, in the Word of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, last time, like I said, I told the story of the Old Testament, essentially, um, and really pointed out some key themes. I do not have any time to rehearse that, but what I do want to do is I want to remind you of some of those key themes that are going to show back up this week. They're going to show back up in just a second. The first was the theme of a commission, a commission that was given to Adam, a commission given to Adam to have dominion and rule, to bear fruit and multiply, to fill the earth, okay? Adam obviously failed in the garden. The second uh, and, and that's what we call the fall. The second theme we talked about was the image of God. We talked about it had uh, a functional aspect to rule as kind of God's vice regents on earth, but also that it had something to do with our makeup that allowed us to do that. We talked about the garden as a kind of temple where the presence of God dwelt with a door that faced east and was guarded by cherubim, just like the tabernacle was indeed reminding the people uh, that uh, they were east of Eden. They were east of Eden. Okay, that's what the tabernacle and the angel, the cherubim guarding the door to the Holy of Holies and the exit of the temple facing east was a reminder of. We have the fall that brings about the demonstration uh, that the mission was a failure, but not without the promise of a seed. And then part of the commission, the bear fruit and multiply part, but not the rule and have dominion, part was re-given to Noah after God recreates. And then God switches from commanding to promising with Abraham. He says that he is going to, to make them great. He is going to multiply everyone because clearly telling them to do this himself is just not going to work, so God is going to get it done. And then at the beginning of Exodus, we see the beginnings of God's fulfillment of this things where the people had multiplied down there in the land and the Pharaoh's like, whoa, whoa, if we don't get this under control, we're going to lose our country. There's too many of these people. That, of course, leads to Exodus chapter 4, let my people go, where Israel is specifically called the Son of God. Very important. Very important. Israel is the Son of God. Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my Son. So we have a Son who is disobedient instead of obedient. He redeems them, he purchases them out of slavery. And then in Exodus 19, before he gives the Ten Commandments, he says that they are going to be a kingdom of priests. That is to say, those who mediate between God and man among the nations, they are to show those in darkness light. They are given a law that reveals God's will, 
And they are promised that even when things go as dark as possible, someone is coming to bear sins and usher in a new creation. That is kind of the story leading up to the very end of Malachi. And then we land on the pages of the New Testament. Hundreds of years of radio silence after Malachi. Then finally, we get the New Testament. I'm going to fly high in this one part just because simply, simply because almost everyone is familiar with these particular elements. But in fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14, Jesus was born to a virgin named Mary, whose husband was Joseph. He lays low, working with his father for 30 years or so, depending on how you want to do the math. And then he begins a public ministry, having been announced and preceded by John the Baptist, who firmly believed that Jesus was ushering in the day of the Lord as it was articulated by the prophet Malachi. That's why so much of John's expectations were fire and brimstone and all the rest, and which is why, presumably, he was the one who sent his disciples to Jesus going, is this the guy? Like, is this? We did something wrong? Wasn't the day of the Lord exactly like he was expected? Of course, Jesus would identify himself in response to the high priest's questions, uh, among other ways, that he was the Son of God, he was equivalent to God in power and might, and that would be sufficient for the Jews to plot to kill against him. He dies the death of someone literally under the curse of God by being hung on a tree, according to the Old Testament. But in doing so, he atones for the sins of the world. He satisfies the wrath of God for his sheep. And then on Easter, he rises triumphantly from the dead in the resurrection, which generally gets all the press, but the resurrection and the ascension cannot actually be pried apart. So this is, a very, this, is very, this is very important. The resurrection without the ascension only lasts 40 days. Everything else about the risen Christ is the ascended resurrection. Right? So for 40 days, okay, we read that he is on earth, kind of going about with his disciples, entering into rooms, having a barbecue on the beach there at the end of John with his disciples. For 40 days, Acts, Acts 1 says that Jesus was around here on earth in a resurrected body, and then he ascended. So what I'm suggesting is that the vast majority of truth about the resurrected Christ, what we read in Scripture, what we read in the New Testament, the vast majority of it is the ascended resurrected Christ and not just the resurrection. And so the ascension and the resurrection are inseparably wed together. Okay, that's going to that's going to be uh, more. It's going to be clarified later, but it's worth saying right now. Uh, so he ascends, and this should not surprise anyone because he said already that he had to leave so that someone else could come. And like some, like everyone else who's experienced a really good thing and the good thing is about to go, they're like, no, 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 no. Even if something better is coming, just trust me. We're really going to ride this thing out. I mean, we love you, Jesus. We've seen this. He says, no, no, no. I've got to go because the helper, the paraclete, is going to come, and that's identified with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes at... Pentecost, after the ascension of Christ. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is reigning. His enemies are becoming a footstool under His feet. 
And he will come back down once more at the end of time to finally redeem his people. And that day of wrath that John the Baptist thought was coming on day one will actually come on that day. That day of final judgment. Now that's the high level. I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about how Jesus completes the story that we discussed last time. And I want you to pay particularly close attention to how Jesus relates to Adam and Israel. And even as you do that, you might even think that Israel is cast as Adam 2.0 with their own mission, their own temple, their own land to subdue, their own failure, their own need to have sacrifice, just like God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. How did that happen? In their nakedness? Well, killed animals. Made sacrifice to cover their shame in the garden, to cover their nakedness. Okay? You might think that as you listen to the story, Israel sounds remarkably like a corporate version of Adam. So, before we do this, though, let me say something about this. Um, when you hear of the word fulfillment, something was fulfilled. Someone tell me what you generally think of. Something was fulfilled. Uh, okay, so some, yeah, I would think that that's, uh, <laughs> I, 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 can I just, I, I so much love your life. I, I love it. Just like, I don't know how you do, just so, it adds so much. Well, your laugh or whatever it is, I don't know, it just tickles my soul. It's fantastic. Um, yes, the idea that something was uh, predicted and then it happened. And so it came true. It, make this, it, it made this future tense statement back here true. Okay? That's, I think, what we generally think of when we think of fulfillment. Um, but there is an important second kind of fulfillment, and that's not the only one. There are other ways in which you might describe something as being fulfilled. But the, the second major kind of fulfillment is not that it makes, that there is a fulfillment happens understood to mean that it makes something come true that was predicted. That's not it. It's that it advance, it has advanced, something has advanced to its full and final state. Its fullness has been realized. So an illustration here is something like this, that the blossom is the fulfillment of the seed. Okay. In other words, this story is going somewhere in Scripture. This story is going somewhere. There is a telos. There is an end. It's not circular. It's not random. It is going somewhere. It has an aim, and it's going to reach an end that is the fullness, and the elements within the story have are their own seeds that point to their own fullness, just like this, the blossom the seed starts as a seed, but it's headed towards something, so to speak, in its own lifespan. It's headed towards the blossom, and that's the fullness of it. Okay, once the blo once it once it blossoms, like okay, first we have the seed, now we have these little leaves, now we have a stem, and then finally you get to a point where if you keep asking what's next, it's like, no, no, this is it. This is like the product. This is its fullness. 
This is what is the full expression of what this was back here. That is generally what we call typological fulfillment, fulfillment of types, that there are shadows in the Old Testament. Uh-oh, I messed something up. That there are shadows in the Old Testament and that there are fulfillments in the new. And let me just say this is so important because if you don't have this understanding of fulfillment in your toolkit, you will be at utter loss to explain some of the ways in which the New Testament explicitly says that things were fulfilled. For example, that Jesus fulfills the law. The law. Well, the law, I mean, by and large, at least, the law is not a, a, a set of predictive prophecies. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? We're going to see another example in just a second here. But, but I, want to, I want us to work with this idea of fulfillment in mind. Having said that, here we go. So now it's time to roll up our sleeves and get ready to see this, this part. And this is, this is definitely my favorite part of going through this stuff. Okay? Christ's resurrection and ascension signifies that he is the initial fulfillment of Old Testament expectations of, and now we're going to go through a list. Once we go through this list, we'll be, we'll be able to better understand what union with Christ is because we'll be able to understand the story of Christ with whom we're participating in in union with Christ. How someone else's story becomes our story. Then we can start making implications for union with Christ, theologically and practically. Christ's resurrection ascension signifies that he is the initial fulfillment of Old Testament expectations of first, the triumphant second Adam. There are multiple passages that demonstrate this, but none more so than Romans chapter 5. If you would, turn there with me so you can see it in the text and don't end up simply trusting the pastor. After talking about having peace with God through faith, Paul writes this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so we're talking about Adam, right? And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. Remember I just said there's typological, it's called, usually people say typological fulfillment. He was a type of the one who was to come. He was a foreshadowing of it. And there is going to be a greater, fuller version coming. So Adam, back in the garden, is a type pointing us forward to something to come. Continuing on, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift, on the other hand, following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Very clear that they are appearing here. Therefore, finally, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Adam, a man, made in the image of God, sins, wrecks everything. Okay, Christ comes, who according to Colossians is the image of the invisible God, as the second man obeys and accomplishes everything Adam was supposed to obey. That is why in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul writes, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay? So we see on the pages of a New Testament, following this ark, that where Adam was supposed to have done this with a telos, with a particular end in mind, having ruled and subdued and made everything look like Eden, um, he didn't, but there was someone who was going to. And there was a whisper that a seed was coming from that would be related to Adam, and it ends up being Jesus, who is the second Adam. Who is the second Adam, okay? So, first, triumphant second Adam. Next, the renewed temple. The renewed temple. Recall that uh, from the garden tabernacle, uh, well, I'm sorry, I said that incorrectly. Recall that from the garden to the tabernacle, to the temple, that, 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 that those places were where the presence of God dwelt. Right? The tabernacle and the temple and the garden was, 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 was home to the very presence of God. And so it may not surprise you then that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the fulfillment, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And you're already going to see one of the implications for all of us being united to Christ is being called the temple, right? But we're not there yet. We're not there to the implications, but you can't understand how those implications work if you don't understand this part. He is the fulfillment of the temple. In fact, he claims this identification for himself in the Gospels. Remember John 2, after cleansing the temple, and of course Matthew got a verse as well, but the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews, understandably confused, said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it back up in three days? Seems unlikely. But John says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his own body. He was speaking about the temple of his own body where the fullness of God dwelt, and he would be killed and raised back up in three days. So Jesus makes his own explicit identification with the temple. Another identification with the temple is not quite as, quite as explicit, but I would say it's very, very clear. It's an important 
passage, and it's the uh, it's the Samaritan woman. It's the woman at the well. It's the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. And if you recall, Jesus tells this woman who has come to get water uh, about some living water. Living water. You'll never be thirsty if you have this living water, he tells this woman. And then the kind of con- the conversation continues. A lot of us know the story here. But the idea of living water is a rich concept coming out of the Old Testament. First of all, you have the rivers that were flowing out of Eden. Flowing out of Eden as life-giving sources to the land around it. You have water flowing out of the temple scene in Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, that is the Holy of Holies, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. So everything will live where the river goes. Joel chapter 3, 18, a spring will go out from the house of the Lord. Zechariah 14, 8, living waters flow out of Jerusalem. This idea of living water is not something that Jesus came up with to be clever. It's something that has roots in the Old Testament, particularly as it's related to the presence of God and how it gives life. Okay, It is related to the presence of God, particularly as it's represented in the temple from the text I just mentioned, and how it gives life. And Jesus explicitly identifies with being living water, with being living water. So both implicitly and explicitly in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus comes as the beginning of the temple fulfillment, the presence of God dwelling with his people And if you fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation, you see the full and final fulfillment of the temple motif where God dwells with his people and the dimensions of the city. If you go look, we're not going to look now, are the same proportions of um, the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. Okay? Temple. From garden temple to glory temple, Jesus temple, church temple, there's a lot there's a lot there but Jesus is the initial fulfillment of the temple claiming that for himself both explicitly uh, and implicitly okay let me before i go on to this next one which is a little thicker let me pause to ask for any questions any questions any clarifications any comments does this make sense are you with me thus far okay So let's talk about this one, which can sometimes, which is by far the most in some senses for some people, some senses for some people, the most contentious one. Uh, and and uh, if, and now we're going to talk about it. That's what, that's what we're going to do. Okay? And some of you know why it is very contentious, and you have friends who know why it's contentious. And if you don't, don't go looking for why it's contentious. Okay? But Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. Christ is the genuine, true Israel. Okay? 
Jesus is not presented as someone who has merely come for Israel. Jesus comes as, um, well, at multiple levels, he's presented as the fulfillment of Israel as a type. I'm suggesting to you that as a land, the land, the temple is a type that pointed forward to something, that Israel is a type, and that Jesus is the fulfilled Israel. Now, you should not believe me unless I can show you that in the Scripture, and so I do, I, of course, to, to demonstrate this, Conclusively, uh, we wouldn't have time to do so, but I do, I do want us to see a couple of them together. First, remember, I made a big deal of this, that Israel is the Son of God. Exodus 4, Isaiah 11.1. Uh, Jesus, unlike Israel, is the faithful Son of God. Jesus is the faithful Son of God. So here's where you're going to need to have a larger understanding of fulfillment here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and if you'll recall there in Matthew chapter 2, we, we are kind of on the heels of the, uh, you know, the wise men visit, and then there's a flight to Egypt, and starting in verse 13, we read this. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until... I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So this is ahead of the slaughter of the innocents. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Here it is. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Where is that from? It's from Hosea 11.1. 1. So turn back with me to Hosea chapter 11 in your copy of the Scripture. Hosea 11.1, 1, the prophet is addressing the nation of Israel explicitly explicitly addressing the nation of Israel, and he makes a comment that in the original context looks backwards, not forwards. Backwards. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Talking about delivering the people out of Egyptian bondage in the Exodus. And so, Matthew... So, so when you read this in Matthew for the first time, you might legitimately be very confused about how Jesus, coming out of Egypt, after going there to escape persecution, how Jesus is the fulfillment of a passage that in its original context, uh, just it, it, well, I say original context, in its, in its grammatical form, historical grammatical form, only points backwards. Pointing backwards to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. But here it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And who is my son here? It's not the people of Israel. 
It is Jesus who is reenacting a new exodus. Okay? More, more to come. Yes, sir. 11.1. Hosea 11.1. Yes, sir. It should be up. Is it up here? Right here. The, in the parentheses, I'm going to have two more. I'm going to have the pairings in parentheses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the genuine true Israel line of evidence, one, not the only one that could be given for that. Second, he is the true vine. He is the true vine. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 80 real quick. Turn with me to Psalm 80. This is, again, not the only one. You could talk about the vineyard and Isaiah. I'm just I'm giving you an, a sampling of how this, what this looks like. Okay, I'm going to read, oh, let's see. I'm just going to read 8 through 16, so you can hear this imagery talking about Egypt. I'm sorry, talking about Israel, okay? You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. This passage and others like it identify Israel as the vine, so much so that Israel would have understood themselves to be the vine, and they would understand themselves to be God's vineyard as well, okay? But something very peculiar happens in John chapter 15 that is not just language, again, that Jesus happens to make up. It is not just, this is very clever and this would be a great analogy. This is not a sermon illustration. Jesus knows exactly the language that he is using. And what does he start off with? He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine Neither can you unless you abide in me. Again, five, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? Jesus is pictured. Israel is pictured as a vineyard and a vine. Jesus is pictured... At, well, he's pictured as both, but because I'm only giving direct evidence of the vine, I'm going to stick with that. Israel was pictured as a vine. Everyone in Israel would have known this. Stock imagery for a Jew. The vine. 
God's vine, the vine that came out of Egypt, Psalm 80, other verses. So when Jesus steps up and says, I am the true vine, everyone would have understood what he was saying. I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. It would have been just as clear as when they asked him, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, and everyone was like, oh, kill him. They understood what he was saying there. They understood what he was, they understood what he was saying here. Okay? I am the true vine. Jesus comes as a fulfillment of the true vine. Jesus, thirdly, is the true Abrahamic offspring. So I'm going to back up to Genesis 12, 17 to just read you this. We talked about God's covenant with Abraham where he said, I'm going to get it done. I've commanded to you do these things, but y'all haven't done them. So I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. And he says, he says this in 12, 17. He says, not what I wanted to read at all. Where is it? That's, oh, it's oh no, it's uh, seventeen. I'm sorry. It's seventeen. Seventeen. Is that what it is? Da, 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 da. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, ba, 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 ba. All right. So yeah. So let's just read from here. Seventeen one. Genesis seventeen one. Um, when, Abraham, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come for you, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God, the promise to Abraham of offspring and seed. Now, very peculiarly, you might think, turn with me to Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says something very interesting. If you've read through this and you wondered what on earth is he saying, this is what he's getting at. He's giving a typological interpretation of Abraham's promise. Listen to what he says. This is because he's referencing what we just read. He says, now, in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Galatians, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We just read about all that, right? Kings, lands, nations, all of it. But then he says this, it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring. And then he says, who is Christ? So did Abraham, did God promise Abraham that he would have many offspring and be the father of many nations? Or was the promise about Christ? And the answer is yes. There, yes. 
There is standard future tense promise fulfillment going on. And then there is typological promise fulfillment going on. Okay? Christ is the seed to whom the promise referred when given to Abraham. And simultaneous to that, it is true, and we see it borne out even as early as Exodus chapter 1, that God was going to give many offspring to Abraham. But if you jump down to 26 through 29, it gets even more interesting. 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then the final zinger, Galatians 3.29. This is the one that all of uh, our, my dearest Presbyterian brothers and sisters just, just gives them so much gas. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now we're going to pause on how that's possible, but you might think if Jesus is the seed to whom the promise referred, and we are united with Christ, that's how we're Abraham's seed. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay? So Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is the true Abrahamic offspring that fulfills the promise in its full and final form. And then finally, Jesus is the reenactment of Israel. Jesus was called out of Egypt as we just read, as the fulfillment of a new exodus leading people out of slavery. This time it would not be slavery, um, it might be physical slavery, it would be slavery from sin. Sin that we are enslaved to. Just like Israel, he passes through the water. He passes through the water, in this case he is baptized. And then shortly after passing through the water, just like Israel, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Israel, 40 years. Jesus, 40 days. Like Israel, Jesus was tested. Like Israel, Jesus was tested with food, even. Okay? Israel, it was manna and complaining. Jesus was hungry. And in his weakest moment, he's tempted by who in Matthew 4? Somebody say it's Satan. Yeah, yeah, he's tempted. Except, unlike Israel, the Son of God, this Son of God succeeds. He succeeds when he's tempted in the wilderness. Like Israel, the true Son, he is tasked with obeying the Father, but unlike Israel, he actually does so. Then, like Israel, he is cut off out of the land of the living. But this time, it's not for his own sins. It's for the sins of the people. And yet, in accordance with the promises made to Israel of resurrection and restoration, Jesus is raised from the dead as the first fruits of new creation. 
Jesus is the faithful son of God who is Israel. He is the true vine who is Israel. He is the true Abrahamic offspring, which just is to say Israel, Jews. And he is the he is narratively reenacts the story of Israel in the Gospels. And so what I'm suggesting is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel, that Israel always pointed to something greater than a piece of Palestine or a group of folks. Okay? Now, some people, so I know someone is asking, what does that imply for the future of ethnic Israel now? That's a fair question. It just would take us far afield in this particular lesson. Okay? If Jesus is a fulfillment of Israel, what are you saying? What, what, what is that? What follows for Jews now? Is there. And, and that, uh, I've actually already explained my view on that a couple years ago now, I think. And I'm happy to do it again, but right now it would just take us off, uh, off track. Okay, fulfillment of Israel. Besides the question that I just raised at the end there, any questions or comments before I continue on? I've got three minutes. Go on. I like it. I like your spirit there, brother. Okay. Jesus is the king priest who rules and mediates faithfully. I take it I don't need to comment very much on the idea of Jesus as king, um, but more specifically, he is the Davidic king that we have all been expecting. In Luke 1, it is announced that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. But he is also, so the king, Davidic king, Davidic Messiah. He is also the fulfillment of the priesthood. The priesthood, also a type that pointed forward. Remember, priests revealed God's will, taught people God's word, and mediated between God and man. That sounds a lot like 1 Timothy chapter 2. That there's only one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. And that is, of course, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood and the sacrificial system. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Therefore, we have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the face we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin." Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Hebrews makes it clear that other priests had to make sacrifices for themselves because they were themselves sinners, and yet Jesus did not have to make any kind of sacrifice for himself, and the sacrifice that he did make was the fulfillment of the blood of bulls and goats that could never fully and finally take away sin. They find their telos, their end, in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, slain. Okay? Jesus is the mission-oriented light to the nations. We talked about Israel in Exodus 19 being commissioned as a kingdom of priests, mediating the presence of God to the nations, teaching the people the law. And guess what? It doesn't happen. Aside from the most pathetic sermon in the whole world recorded in the book of Jonah, there is very little at all in the Old Testament about Israel saying, hey, come and see what God is up to and penetrating the darkness. But Jesus himself, as anticipated by prophets like, prophets like Isaiah, is very different. 
that in the darkness there's a light that has shone. He is the light of the world, John says. He is leading people out of darkness. He is the one by whom the nations will know the law of God and receive the good news that, here's the thing, they get in on the promises made to Abraham. He was going to be blessed to be a blessing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Yes, Jesus obeyed the law, but he also brought the law to its fullness. That's why he can say all the law and the prophets are summed up in the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. Everything hangs on this. And so Jesus fulfills the law, not just in um, discharging an obligation to obey it, but actually bringing it to its end, its fullness. And as a result, we get the law of love or the law of Christ summarized again by the first and second greatest commandments. They all, the law always pointed to something fuller, to something fuller, including the Sabbath, by the way, a rest, a rest. And then finally, resurrection and new creation. The resurrection of Jesus's physical body that anticipates our own um, is not something new in the Old Testament. We actually read about it in the book of Daniel. We read about it in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, where those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And some are going to awake to everlasting life, and some are going to awake to shame and everlasting contempt. But just as the creation, Paul says, groans as a, a, like a woman in the, in, in the pains of childbirth for this new creation, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, the sons of God are believers in resurrection bodies. Okay? Jesus received an end-time verdict of righteousness and glorification before the end of time. That's why he's the first fruits of what's to come. And Jesus did that as the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the Old Testament, which is why all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus, which is the way that Paul says it. Okay, I know that was a lot of material, a lot of material, uh, it went three minutes over there. Uh, my hope is that you see Christ in a more contoured, much fuller way in accordance with the story of Scripture and the narrative that he inhabits. That is going to really set the stage for helping us understand why union with Christ results in so many things down the road. Let's close in prayer. And Lord Jesus, we are honored to study Christ to study what you have done in redemptive history, bringing things to fulfillment, making promises, keeping promises, redeeming people. We pray that you would be glorified in our worship today as we reflect on those truths, we sing those truths, we pray those truths, even as those things transform our lives and our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen.